As we come now before the Word of God, if you'd like to read with me, this morning we're in Exodus chapter 14. We'll take up these first 18 verses, which is quite a bit here, but uh, we can handle it. Exodus chapter 14. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Uh, Lord, we know uh, that just as David said when he fought Goliath, that the Lord saves not with sword or spear, but just because the battle is the Lord's. That's true. We know all things are yours. And as we've just sung, now according to your will, would you open our eyes and illumine us according to your spirit? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, this is Exodus chapter 14. We'll take these first 18 verses. So we'll begin here in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. In front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we've done that we've let Israel go from service? And so he made his chariot ready and took his army with him, and he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, 
Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it so that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. This is the word of God. Now, we are here in another long stretch of narrative in these long events in Exodus. And so within all that's happening here, I know this is a lot to process. Within all of this, I want us to focus this morning on just one verse, actually one sentence of the whole section we've just read, which is verse 14. Let me read it again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Now, this is the kind of verse that we can really hang on to. This is the kind of verse that you might want to, you know, stick up on your bathroom mirror or your fridge. In fact, we've made that easy for you because it's printed as your jogger verse in the bulletin, and so you can just tear it off and just lick it and stick it uh, and put it up there so you can see it again. It's the kind of verse that you might highlight in your Bible or underline, however you do that. It's highlighted in mine. Uh, It's the kind of verse that you might even want to memorize, internalize, because the truth in this verse for the Israelites, this is the truth that will carry them through that will move them through this next miraculous event of the crossing through the Red Sea on dry ground, which we'll get to look at next week. But if there's this much weight, if there's this much importance on this particular verse, we need to understand it. When we hear, the Lord will fight for you, you have only to be silent, what does that actually mean? So that's what we'll look at this morning. Before we even look at the text itself to unpack it, we need to see what's underneath it. So we'll look first at the reason why this verse is said. Why is it that the Lord fights for them? We know from the text earlier in the verses here that the Lord has brought Israel to this particular place on purpose. If you're here last week, you might remember that it was no accident uh, that, uh, that Israel has been brought here, that the Lord guided them to this particular place. But now they seem to be pinned between a rock and a hard place. That on one side is the Red Sea, and on the other side is Pharaoh and his army kind of fast pursuing. The Lord had led his people by this particular path in the wilderness to avoid war with the Philistines, at least for now. But this winding route that he's brought them on has now brought them to this particular place to camp here for some sort of war. The Lord specifically says as much. He says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart again. I'll harden his heart. I will stir him up to pursue you. In some sense, the Lord is causing this clash. Why would he do that? 
he tells Moses, the Lord speaks to Moses and now to us, a few times his reasoning for all of this. We see it the first time mentioned in verse 4. This is the Lord speaking. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I, here it is, I will get glory over Pharaoh and his hosts and the Egyptians and such. That God is fighting this battle for Israel in order to get glory for himself. So what does that mean, that God would get glory from this? The same word, the same idea of getting glory, we see it again in the Ten Commandments. You recognize it in the, in the, the, uh, the mother-father passage, how we're supposed to relate to moms and dads, that we are to honor them. That's the idea here. That in relation to our fathers and our mothers, we acknowledge that they're in a position of particular authority over us. They have authority over us as mom and dad. So here again at the Red Sea, God is showcasing his own authority as the only God. And the people are going to then acknowledge that, to give him glory in that way, to know that he is really the Lord over all. And it's not just the Lord's own people, the Israelites, who are going to give him glory, although, of course, they will do that. It's the Egyptians, he says. I'll do this so that the Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord. Not the ones that perish in the Red Sea, of course, but those who have survived, that they would see that he is God. And it's even more than just the Egyptians, of course, this event and all the events that we've been reading over these past months are going to spread. You know, if 10 plagues happens anywhere, and then Red Sea parts open and a whole nation of people, hundreds of thousands, march through on dry ground, people are going to hear about it. Even in an area, in a time where there's no internet and no Twitter to tell them, people talk and, and news spreads and the Lord will become, if I could say it this way, kind of a living legend to the surrounding nations. And this was uh, the case so much so that months later, even after the Israelites first arrive in the Promised Land, when we see them show up in Joshua chapter 2, the Canaanites who are there say when they meet the Israelites, we already know you. We've already heard about you. We already know your God. And so when the Israelites meet Rahab, who hides some of the Israelites as spies, this is what she tells them in Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. Before the men lay down, she, Rahab, came up to them on the roof, and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. The fear of you has fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. In other words, God's glory has been gained already. 
It is already spreading. It's already here in the promised land that we see and know your God is God. Now, I recognize that for some people, maybe even for many people today, when we look at and read the scene in the Red Sea and all the plagues that kind of come with that, all the destruction of Pharaoh's army, these are, these are real people. These are not just characters in a story. These are human beings. And some of us might struggle with the idea of how God could do such a thing to them. How God could just wipe them all out. But at least for Rahab, these events of the Red Sea were a bud that would blossom into faith for her. That even though her heart was melted by hearing these events, that softened heart was good soil that the Lord would produce hope and trust from. And that can be true for us too. In fact, these particular words of Rahab about the Red Sea and the events that we're reading now in Exodus, these particular words for me hold a very special place in my heart. They always will now. Uh, Because I was reading them aloud on the day that Arcadia was born. Um, We were in the hospital, and things take forever. If you've been there, you know how this goes. But there were, you know, a few hours of labor, and so, you know, there's a whole bunch of process that goes with that, but I happened to be reading scripture aloud uh, in a way to just kind of help calm and center us. Uh, Laura probably needed less calming and centering than I did, uh, so it was mostly for me, I'm sure. But I happened to be at this section of text in Joshua, Rahab's report about the Red Sea, when the moment suddenly hit uh, that it was time to to go, and we're, we're ready to push. And, and Laura may not remember this scene. She was a little busy uh, with, with other things going on. But for me, the time, that moment is very scary. It's, in, it's intense to be involved in things like this. And these words that I had just spoken out of Rahab's mouth were a source of comfort for me. That this God who had gained glory for himself in the Red Sea 3,500 years prior, his glory now extends to the heavens above and to the earth beneath and even now to me in this hospital room. I was reminded that he really is the Lord. And it was such a help. So we're reminded in these events in Exodus that God is glorious. He expresses his glory in many ways. The particular way that we see it expressed here in Exodus is that he's going to fight for you, we're told. He will fight for you at the Red Sea. That's what the Lord is doing. That's what's going on on kind of his side of the coin, if we can say it that way. The Lord will fight for you. Now, what are the people to do in the sentence we're looking at? Verse 14, again, back in Exodus. The Lord will fight for you, and you, you have only to be silent. Now let's unpack that a little bit. You have only to be silent. Some English translations here of the original Hebrew render this phrase, you have only to be silent, as be still or hold your peace or stay calm. 
And all of these, I think, are unfortunate translations. And they miss the heart of what Moses is saying here. They give the impression that these words are mainly to soothe the people, to quiet them, to calm them down. Now, to be clear, the Lord does soothe us. He does quiet us. We hear in the prophet Zephaniah, the Lord rejoices over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. Or the famous verse in Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. Those verses are meant to quiet us, to calm us, but that is not what's happening here. This word here is about quieting us, stilling us in a particular way, actually a particular part of our body. The Hebrew is specific to say, still your mouth. Quiet your mouth. That's why the translation, be silent. But actually, it could probably be translated more sharply than this. Moses is basically saying, the Lord will fight for you, and you bite your tongue. The Lord will fight for you, and you zip your lip. Or one scholar said, it should best be translated, the Lord will fight for you, and you shut up. I know that's a bad word. There's no kids in the room. If you're a parent with kids listening, kids don't say shut up. But these are Moses' words to the people. He's being sharp to them. There's a comfort in here a little bit. Yes, there is. But this is mostly rebuke. And you can see from the context of what's going on why Moses would need to say this. When the people first see Pharaoh's army charging toward them back in verse 10, their response is to be afraid and to cry out to the Lord. This makes sense, of course. But they don't say, Lord, you are God alone in the heavens above and the earth beneath. Lord, please fight for us. Lord, please save us for the glory of your name. They don't say that. What they say instead is, Moses, what have you done? Moses, why did you drag us out here in the wild to die? Moses, it would have been better if we had never left Egypt at all. Moses, take us back to slavery. That's what they say. And I want to give them the benefit of the doubt here, you know. I'd like to think that this is maybe just a moment of panic. For them, you know, when emotions get really high, we get really uh, scared, we sometimes say things that we might regret. Happened to anyone here? Happened to me? You know, we could say, I didn't really mean that. But the scripture also tells us that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So at least in some sense, they really believed, at least in the moment, what they said. They really don't believe God. And this isn't just an isolated incident. We see this same sort of unbelief in them pop up again and again months later when we see in the book of Numbers, chapter 14, just a couple verses here. This is now a scene long past the Red Sea. Pharaoh's armies have long since been dealt with, but here they are now again in the wilderness, Numbers, chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron The whole congregation said to them, Oh, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. 
Or would that we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives, our little ones, will become a prey. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. After all that time, all that investment's been in this, let's just choose a different leader and go back. There is something about this scene that is totally bonkers to me. God has brought them all this way, and now they would rather go back to their bondage. And yet at the same time, there is something about this scene that feels a little too familiar and a little too personal. Because I would imagine that if you're anything like me, you know exactly what this experience is like. Even a modern artist, a singer, um, Sarah Groves, I think is her name. Sarah Groves wrote a song about this incident. And the chorus goes like this. She says, I've been painting pictures of Egypt, leaving out what it lacks. The future feels so hard, and I want to go back. Why doesn't that hit the nail on the head? You know, what's in front of them is hard and scary and threatening. And so they just reframe everything about their history. Just touch up what they know of Egypt, airbrush it just a little bit to convince themselves that it would be better where they were. And we know what this is like. If you or someone you know faces any sort of addiction, this is probably very real to you. If you've tried to quit cigarettes or alcohol or any sort of drug or caffeine detoxes, it is rough to come out of that. The future feels so hard, and it would be better if I went back. People sometimes experience this in their marriages, too. Been married for so long, and things are maybe a little less exciting than they were once were in your honeymoon stages when you were young and dating, and so some people in their minds think that they prefer the freedom that singleness offered them, and so they end up kind of exploring other things on the side and can justify their affairs because this isn't what I signed up for. Or even just in the Christian life in general, as the Lord is shaping us, as the Spirit is guiding us, pressing on us to grow in holiness, we sometimes get jealous of other people, of all the things they get to do and say and not care about. Get jealous that they get to indulge the pleasures of sin that we don't get to have. And so a part of us says, let's choose a leader and let's go back. It's better there, wasn't it? Let's just leave out all that it lacks and think it's better to go back. Now, I want to be as clear as I can here. It is hard. It is hard to move ahead and to follow the Lord and not to go back. It's hard, but it's good. It's also scary and unknown. It can feel impossible even at times. And the weight and complexity of all of this, to feel that weight settled in, even as an expression of fear, is very, very natural. And there is nothing wrong with crying out to God for help. That's not what he's saying when he says, hush your mouth. 
you know, the wheels of, of the story in Exodus begins to turn when the people begin to cry out to the Lord back in chapter 2. Lord, help us. They're just, it's described as their groaning ascends up to the Lord, and the Lord hears their cries, and the Lord comes to save them. So please, in the midst of your trouble, please come to God for help. Please cry out. Please pour out your heart and plead for him for mercy. He hears and he acts. The people here are not being rebuked for their fears or for their cries. If you need help, it is good to open your mouth and ask for it not only from God, but from each other. You will never be faulted for that. The scripture does not fault you for that. I need help too, from God and from you. So it is not because they're afraid that they're rebuked here. It's not because they're crying out for help that they're rebuked here. This here is something different. This is grumbling. This is accusation. This is unbelief. And as all of those things, they are therefore sin, serious sin against the God of glory. They're saying essentially, God, I know better than you do. God, I see clearer than you do. God, you were wrong to do this, and I want out. And Moses says, hush. You hush your mouth. The Lord will fight for you. You, you be silent. And instead he tells them what they should do instead of running their mouths. He says back in verse 13, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord that he will work for you. In other words, close your mouth, but open your eyes. I want you to watch. I want you to see what the Lord will do. Don't let the flapping of your gums with all sorts of criticism about what should or should not have been done. Watch for what the Lord will do before your very eyes. People will talk about this event for centuries, and you get a front row seat to it. Don't miss it. Hush and watch. The Lord will fight for you you have only to hush. This verse exposes the sin of the people, the unbelief of the people. Sin that we don't see them repent of, by the way. But this verse also speaks about the incredible grace of God towards sinners. This is a glimpse into the living work of God that we see in Jesus. It's summarized by Paul in the book of Ephesians, also another verse that is good to put up on your bathroom mirror. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The source of these things is God's rich mercy, his great love for us in Christ, that he would make us alive even when we're dead in trespasses, even when we griped and complained about his help or our sense of his lack of help, even when we told him that our way is better, even when we said, we don't want you, we prefer Pharaoh as our master more. Even then, the Lord fought for you. The Lord fought for you. Be silent. Is there any doubt then in the midst of this that it is by grace that he has saved us? It's this that makes this particular verse in Exodus worth sticking on your mirror or your fridge or pressing onto your heart. Even though the verse isn't quite as gentle as we might want it to be. You know, I don't like being told to zip my lip about anything. It stings a little bit, even if I sometimes need to hear it sometimes. But there's deep value in this verse, not just because we're trying to do better and watch our mouths, but because this verse is a mirror to ourselves, but also a window to see something true about God. That this particular rebuke is also a comfort because we see that even in the midst of our sin, even in the middle of spouting on my mouth and showing how much muck still is in my heart, even in the midst of that, the Lord still fights for you because this is who he is. The Lord's power and grace is greater than all our sin. And as we see it unfold here in Exodus, this serves to accomplish his purposes. He will gain glory for himself through it. That we will see his salvation in the midst of our sin and know this is the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, press this now upon us. Would you stop our mouths for a moment so that we can see your work and praise you? Thank you for your mercy towards sinners like us, given to us in Jesus. Help us to trust you and to glorify your greatness. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.